This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Learning Unlocked podcast presented by Open Sesame. Taking a deep dive into the global world of learning and development with practical tips and tricks, along with insights from leading brands and the people that make them work. This is Learning Unlocked. Now, here's your host, Brian Berger. My guest is Rob Lauber. He is the founder of XLO Global LLC. Rob has more than 30 years in the learning and development space. He's the 2013 CLO of the year. From 2014 to 2020, Rob was the senior vice president of global chief learning for McDonald's Corporation. Rob had responsibility for the overall learning and talent development strategy and execution across all 37,000 restaurants around the world. Rob was also a vice president at Yum University at Yum Brands. Find more about Rob and XLO Global at xloglobal.com. Rob, thanks for joining me on the Learning Unlock podcast. How are you? Great, Brian. Great to be here today. So why don't we start with how did you get into learning and development? Yeah, well, I, I got to remember way back because uh, <laughs> this is going to the 1980s. Um, I was in a, uh, a role where I was running actually an operations piece at, at Dun & Bradstreet. And um, I was really good at actually spotting frauds in Brooklyn, Queens and Staten Island, fraudulent businesses hmm. um, at the time, uh, which was a fun kind of game, cat and mouse game. Um, but I was really good at it. And uh, somebody stepped forward and asked me to start teaching other people what to look for and, you know, what I've been able to spot and those kind of things. And I started doing sort of um, some uh, basically like some meetings, you know, uh, small classroom kind of stuff around different offices around New York State. Um, and they turned to me and said, you know, we have a national training spot open. We think you'd be great for it down in Georgia. So I moved out of New York City and moved down to south of Atlanta, Peachtree City, Georgia. And I started doing stand-up training for um, probably about 40 to 45 weeks a year. Um, and it was all new hires at Dun & Bradstreet at the time. And it was teaching selling skills. So that was my first entree into the world of learning and development. Wow. I'm sure a lot has changed in the last 30 years. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. But on your website and in some of the uh, conversations you've had, I've heard you speak about teaching from the outside in. What does that mean? Yes. So um, for me, it's the value of an external perspective on something that you're really close to in the business. So I can think about throughout my career, the value of uh, peers of mine, of, uh, you know, of uh, professional services firms, of, you know, even product suppliers. Um, bringing an external perspective to help you solve a particular business problem. 
And I think there's real value in that. And, you know, of course, I'm on the outside right now. Uh, so it's very self-serving. But at the same time, uh, when I was on the inside um, and people that are very close to me would know I relied a lot on, you know, my external network to help me think through problems, tackle problems in a safe way, uh, and also to get an alternative point of view on, you know, what I see. Because sometimes when you're so close to the problem, the answer may be really obvious, but you just can't see it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think sometimes I call it tunnel vision. Sometimes yeah. corporations get tunnel vision and they do need that outside perspective to come in and go, wait a minute, you're not looking at this the right way because you're so close to it. Yeah, or they ask you just that one question that like unlocks, you know, pulls the curtain back on the answer being right in front of you. So right. I find it's really important to have. Your roles with McDonald's and at Yum Brands, both global companies, uh, Hamburger U was one of the earliest corporate learning institutions. One of the things I've marveled at when I've read up on you is how do you train people globally? Because it's not one size fits all, but you are one corporation, but you've got, what, 120 countries with employees at McDonald's. So that's a tough job. Yeah, you know, at the top line, um, every restaurant essentially does the same thing. So, you know, uh, so so you can apply kind of an 80-20 rule to anything that works, you know, anything that works the way it works at McDonald's. So, you know, if you sell coffee, you sell coffee. Now, you might use a different machine in a different country or it might be drip in one place and filtered in another or whatever. But but essentially, you can... Um, you can construct frameworks for learning and enable learning in pretty much the same way around the world when your business model runs essentially the same way around the world. So we, we started um, and really took that kind of approach and that kind of mindset to what we were doing. So we had resources in many of the countries um, that we operated in, or we certainly had franchise resources in every country that we operated in. And we would leverage them to kind of bring it the last mile. So, you know, we, we set up, you know, we did things like we put some standards in place for how we create content. Uh, we put platforms in place that everybody was using the same kind of platforms. Um, and that enabled us to sort of establish a community. So where local variance was needed, uh, people were empowered and were capable of and skilled enough to be able to retool um, what was coming from somewhere else to work for their market. Again, 120 countries. How do you work through the challenges of the language barrier? Yeah, well, you know, we we narrowed down um, and invested at the corporate level from our team in about 14 key languages, which covered about 80% of our population. There were about 40 languages, I would say, represented um, in the business, uh, at least. But I think that the um, the standards and the, the, uh, the consistent approach we used to creating content really enabled local translation to be much easier. So uh, everyone was using articulate around the world as a simple example, um, meant that, you know, you can access the source code and you can do your local translation right inside uh, that piece because you had that same skill set as everyone else. People who aren't familiar with Hamburger U or Yum University, are you going to these places in person? And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of picturing like the internship at Google, the movie with uh, yes. Vince Vaughn. And I can't remember the other actors there. Are you going doing that or is this virtual that you're going through Hamburger U and, and Yum U? No, uh, you know, Hamburger University has been around since, I'll talk about that one. It's been around since 1961 and it's always been a place uh, that you go to. 
Um, and it's continued to be a place that you go to. Now there's nine, maybe 10, I guess, 10 around the world uh, locations that you can go to. And so you're, you're, you know, there's one, uh, there's two in Europe. There's one in North America in Chicago, obviously. Um, there's one in Latin America. There's one in Australia, uh, those kind of pieces. So, um, yeah, the, the design was always to be an in-person experience where uh, restaurant managers specifically could come together with other restaurant managers um, and really learn, you know, how to run a, a great restaurant. Um, we made some shifts on that uh, while I was at McDonald's around sort of reinventing and reframing Hamburger University uh, to be able to reach a broader audience and to use more digital and virtual kind of experiences. Um, and then we shifted the uh, what the class kind of experience was about to be much more about developing themselves as leaders um, and being more strategic uh, in terms of how they think about the restaurant that they operate. So how many days are people going through Hamburger University when they're, yeah. and are they through like right when they're hired or do they go through after a month or two? No, usually um, it's either, it, it varies on a spectrum. I would say uh, some right before they're hired into that role. So they're, they're, they're working for McDonald's. They're typically running a shift or, you know, at a senior, fairly senior level in the restaurant already. And they're being prepared to become a restaurant manager. So that franchise owner anticipates an opening coming about in the next couple of months, knows that person's going to be it, may sign them up. Uh, and it, and from there, it's, um, you know, as far as six to nine months in role, uh, people will show up uh, in, into the session as well. A lot of it is driven by uh, our, the franchisees who decide when somebody is ready to attend. Hmm. What about the senior executives? I've heard of some uh, restaurants and in the industry who, before you ever go sit in the executive office, you're, you're actually in the restaurant. You're learning on the front lines so that you understand what the business looks like from those front lines. Yeah. There's a, you know, at Yum and at McDonald's, uh, there's a good number of people in the business in the senior executive roles that have worked in restaurants as part of their career, mm. um, which is, you know, pretty sort of unique, but not really unique to the restaurant business. You'd find a lot of people in the restaurant business that way. Um, but I, at McDonald's and at Young Brands, it was part of the onboarding when you come on board and an expectation that you worked in a restaurant. Like I, I, had, I hired a senior director and I had her the first 30 days. She came in, she got her cell phone and her laptop. And I said, I'll see you in 30 days. And I handed her off to one of my operations partners. Um, and he put her through every role uh, and every shift in a restaurant company owned and franchise over the next 30 days. So she really understood the environment she was going to be creating learning for. More of Learning Unlocked is coming up after this. Diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to be a top priority for businesses everywhere. Open Sesame has created a survey that will give you insight into where your organization stands on diversity. Aside from being educational, this survey is a powerful tool to help you understand areas of improvement and spark conversations about strategies for creating a more inclusive and equitable workplace. After you take the short survey, you'll get access to Open Sesame's DEI Toolkit, an online hub where you can find additional resources. Visit opensesame.com today to start your survey. Back to Learning Unlocked. Here's Brian Berger. 
What kind of leadership is needed at the senior level in order to encourage learning and development? Not every company does learning and development for their employees. So you really have to have buy-in from the top level. Yeah, I think that I think there's a um, there's probably divergent ways that people look at learning as a as a vehicle. So if I'm a learner and I'm in a you know take a McDonald's example or in an office staff environment, uh, there's a way I look at learning, which is about bettering myself and enhancing my capabilities and deepening my understanding of a particular subject area. If you're in a if you're in a C-suite, you're thinking about learning really as an enabler to driving the strategy of the business forward. So you may be looking at how, you know, a conversation that's common today around sort of upskilling or reskilling people is we know where we want to go, but we don't have the people, the people that we have don't necessarily have the capability to get us there. So how do we invest in those people in a way that helps drive us in that direction? Um, I think you have to have um, C-suite leaders that think about learning as a strategic lever and as a business driver more than as an employee engagement tool, for example. So how much does learning and development, continuing education play a part in a company attracting and retaining their employees? I think it's really critical. You can look at lots of different surveys around um, what attracts millennials, for example, into organizations. You know, uh, pay, of course, we all want to, you know, buy our food and pay our rent or, you know, pay our mortgage or whatever it is, uh, build our wealth. Um, but I think that the 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 reality is that uh, right up there is also uh, their ability to learn and develop and get new skills. So, uh, and you can look at that a couple of different ways, either through variable set of experiences, right? Um, as well as sort of those formal learning opportunities. Post pandemic, how is learning and development different? Um, I think it's on the way to being much different. Uh, right, I think a lot of the last 12 months or so, let's just say that the 12 months of the pandemic from you know March to March has been about reacting to uh, changing circumstances and a, and a pretty big disruption of the business model of you know learning. So all your instructor-led capability went away overnight. So what do you do and how do you pivot and how do you move in an organization to be able to do that? I think coming out of it now, what people are realizing is um, some of the things they were doing uh, that they had to move virtually are they're finding just as effective. Uh, and if you put your business hat on, you'd say, gosh, that's a lot cheaper uh, and or gosh, it's a lot less disruptive to the business. So I think that's that's a direction that you're going to see probably more questions being asked about when we there's still value in bringing people together. Absolutely. But how are we being really intentional about what we want from an outcome perspective that activity to be? So I think I think there's less taking for granted that it's a good idea and more sort of challenging the status quo. The second one is I think that um, you know the workplace with the hybrid or remote or whatever we're calling it this week um, kind of approach to you know to to us from you know phoning it in from our living rooms is um, also you know a trend that's going to continue. Maybe uh, you know maybe and probably not at the scale that it is right now, um, but it's going to continue. And I think the learning and development organizations have to figure out how are they going to continue to be relevant uh, when you've got, you know, sort of a mixed use audience. You've got some people who are in a building and in a location and can easily access a location to show up. Uh, And you've got some people who are, you know, 
uh, hundreds of miles away uh, because that's the nature of the work that they do. Uh, and how do you provide development experiences for both of those people in ways that keep them engaged? I think that's the challenge on the table that learning and development is going to have to figure out to be able to adapt and adjust to um, where business is headed right now. Yeah, I mean, for example, if you look at uh, young brands or you look at McDonald's, there's a lot more people using the drive-through right now and oh, yeah. less people going into the restaurant. There are things that are cashless and touchless now. So these are learnings that employees have to put in their tool belt that maybe they didn't have before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about, um, you know, if you go back even three or four years, right, your your way of buying a meal at uh, almost all restaurants was, you know, you go in, you place your order, you pay for it, and you leave. Uh, today, you know, you have a lot of different ways. You can go to your Ubers and your DoorDashes and your Grubhubs, and you can, you know, never see the person that drops it at your front door these days, right? Or uh, you can order it in advance and you pull into a spot and someone brings it out to your car, or you can order it in advance, pull up in the drive-through and they hand it to you out the window and you're gone. So I think the nature of it's changing a lot. And and the consequence of that is, you know, my, my joke at McDonald's was you used to be able to see the bus pull into the, you know, into the parking lot. So you knew 50 people were about to, you know, queue up the lines and you better, you know, get the kitchen volume turned up. Um, today, you can't see that. Right. Uh, because 50 people could be placing a mobile order right now at lunchtime for whatever or dinner time for whatever. And you're not going to see it until it actually shows up. So the the agility and the uh, the flexibility and the the breadth of skill set that people need to be able to re react to that um, is changing sort of the worker in that restaurant. Yeah, that's interesting. What about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Big topic right now. Companies are focusing more on these efforts. What are you seeing from where you sit? Um, it's it's been an opportunity. So I, I don't think I don't think there's a lot new to the conversation. I think that there's urgency in the conversation. Um, I think that um, people have felt like progress has been too slow. Um, and, you know, more direct action is probably required to, to do that. And so I, I think there's a lot of different dimensions that play to that, um, you know, uh, in, in the world that I'm in. You can talk about, um, you know, how do we give people, uh, you know, how do we enable people that are working in our restaurants to attain college degrees, advance their education, uh, those types of pieces where they can go on and have great careers uh, somewhere else. Um, we call that outskilling for a buzzword. And, um, you know, uh, you know, how are we doing that? And how are we doing that specifically for people of color um, and or disadvantaged folks uh, and creating that kind of opportunity? So I think that's one dimension of it. You know, this, the, the other end of the spectrum is, you know, uh, what are we doing to drive more women into the boardrooms and C-level executive positions uh, and people of color? Same thing. Um, I don't, you know, and that's not really a new conversation, but I think that um, the world in the last 12 months has said, okay, enough talk. Let's start seeing some action on that. More of Learning Unlocked is coming up after this. Open Sesame helps companies develop the world's most productive and admired workforces. How? By having the most comprehensive catalog of e-learning courses from the world's top publishers, publishers like TED and Harvard. And having courses that cover learning topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, 
leadership development, safety and compliance, and wellness. Try a course for free today by visiting opensesame.com backslash course of the week. Back to Learning Unlocked. Here's Brian Berger. Just a few more questions. Uh, XLO Global, what are you seeing there as, as you, you know, consult to various companies? What are some of the trends we should be paying attention to? Um, you know, I'm, I'm working with a few startups right now, and so I'm paying a lot of attention to the ed tech, uh, workforce tech, workforce learning technology space right now, and I'm working with several companies in that space. I, I think that um, the investment level being poured into that space by venture capital, private equity, uh, and others has, I think, quadrupled in the last two years. Wow. Um, particularly overseas, believe it or not, outside the United States. So. Uh, China leading the way on that. So I think that um, you're going to see more entrance into the marketplace and more innovations, particularly with the application of artificial intelligence and machine learning kind of uh, back, you know, back engines um, to really change the space. I think that's one. The second one is there seems to be a shift away from um, thinking about competencies uh, and and breaking things down even further to more skills and actually even tasks. So almost a deconstruction of jobs uh, is go, is beginning uh, on the HR side um, and will eventually impact how learning and development thinks about what they do as well and will probably impact the way organizations over time think about jobs. And that deconstructing, are you seeing that being done more in person or virtually these days? Uh, well, I'm seeing it being done inside an organization in terms of uh, looking at skills that they need more than looking at jobs that they need to fill, right? So, uh, and look, you know, and looking within their organization. So I can think of a big online uh, retailer that we all know and probably use almost every day who, um, you know, uh, was hiring an engineer and um, they had it out to post and a couple of drivers applied. And they're, you know, they didn't, they kind of discounted the drivers, but what they didn't realize was those drivers were laid off engineers from other companies in the pandemic mm. uh, that were perfectly capable of taking those roles. So the question in, in a business like that, where you've got hundreds of thousands of people is, um, how do we know what we already have embedded within our organization? Uh, how do we find those people? And then how do we take advantage of that? You know, how do we turn talent acquisition inside our business uh, the way we do outside our business? And so I think you see, you're going to see a little bit more of that kind of happening with much more intention than maybe in the past. Hmm. That's a really interesting point. I think you're right. I think there are a lot of companies that kind of don't know what they have inside their own company and, and they need to take better inventory of uh, the assets that are available. Yeah. And I think you see the, you know, the war for talent kind of thing. Um, you know, obviously right now there's uh, what 8 million jobs open and 13 million people that don't want them or something like that. And uh, it's a really interesting moment because I think organizations are sitting there saying it's not going to get any easier to hire people. So why aren't we taking people inside of our business, someone in our operations business going over into our IT organization to work on IT for operations who has great context in our business, and we can teach them the IT stuff, right? right? I, I think that those um, those kind of awakenings are happening as well. So you're seeing more internal mobility opportunities begin to emerge. All right, I'm going to end on a random last question. 
Okay. I understand that you are a horse racing aficionado. <laughs> Greatest racing horse of all time. Well, the obvious is Secretariat, right? Right. right. Still holds most track records in the major races. So um, I would go with that. Uh, how about if I give you my most thrilling moment? In yes. Life? Yes. Um, a couple of years ago, American Pharaoh. Yeah, uh, triple crown winner. Yeah, uh, was running and was undefeated. Had won uh, the triple crown and was still running that summer. And I went to the Traverse Stakes and watched American Pharaoh get defeated by a horse called Keen Ice at the Traverse Stakes, uh, which was a very, very uh, amazing upset. Wow. Yeah. I don't. I don't think I ever even read about that or heard about. Yeah. That. You just hear the, all the, the success other, of American Pharaoh. You didn't hear about that race. No, the, the second best, uh, greatest horse I've ever seen is Wise Dan, which is a horse most people don't know. But it won the Breeders' Cup Classic like seven years in a row. So it was uh, it's it won some major races along, you know, and had a very long career. It was like nine years old or 10 years old beating three and four year old horses. So it was a, a monster of a horse. How did you get into horse racing? Uh, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, that'll do it. <laughs> with, with Young Brands, and that started it. And then um, a good friend of mine uh, in Saratoga got into uh, a syndicate or of sorts, and uh, had a breeding, you know, had a breeding horse. And um, so I got in a piece of that. Um, and then um, another good friend of mine and I decided we were going to try to hit um, certain races every year. Uh, in certain places. So for probably five or six years, we went to every Breeders' Cup, wow. uh, reg regardless of where it was around the country. And it was two, it's two days of uh, the best horses in the world running. And we just really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Have you ever gotten to name a horse? And if so, what was the horse's name? Um, I did get to, I, well, I think I, I wasn't a decision maker, but I weighed in on the name of a, a horse. Um, it was, um, the name of the horse was Matza Bella. Ooh, I like it. And it was, it was its mother was Miss Matza, and its father had an Italian name. And my daughter's name is Bella, so I, I threw in Matza Bella as a name, and um, people bit, and that became the name of it. That's so, fun. Not everyone gets to name a horse, so you no. Know, you know, unfortunately, you won't find it in any record books, but. <laughs> Rob Lauber, the founder of XLO Global. You can find him online at xloglobal.com. Thanks so much for joining me on the Learning Unlock podcast. Brian, great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Learning Unlocked, presented by Open Sesame. Download this and every episode on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Learning Unlocked is produced by Griggs Productions.